Welcome to the Cybersecurity Defenders Podcast, episode number 96. My name is Christopher Luft. I'm one of the co-founders of Lima Charlie, and I will be your host. On today's episode, we're going to be chatting with the one and only Matt Bromley about some cutting-edge intel coming out of the Lima Charlie Community Slack channel. It's another week, another set of bad actors, malicious files, and compromised systems. On today's show, we're going to be talking about some of the cutting-edge intel being shared by our awesome community in the Lima Charlie Slack channel, and a huge thank you to all those folks that take the time to share their knowledge with the rest of us. If you enjoy listening in on these Intel chats and aren't in our community Slack channel yet, then you should join the conversation. Much more information than we can get through on the show is being shared there, and you will get it in real time. You can join the Slack channel at slack.limacharlie.io. And as always for these chats, I'm joined by the one and only Matt Bromley. How are you doing today, Matt? Hey, Chris, it's great to see you. Great to be here. Uh, Excited for something new that we're doing uh, on this episode here. Hopefully those of you who are watching us live uh, may be realizing, wait a second, I've never watched these guys before. But nonetheless, I'm doing great. Excited to be here as always. uh, And and I'm just loving some of the stuff we're going to be covering today. It's great to get into like the latest and greatest threats and Talk about how they impact our community. So I'm looking forward to it. Let's get to it. Yeah, really excited to be on video now. So uh, if you're watching this, as Matt said, this is new for us. So uh, hopefully you like what you see. (laughs) I'm going to drop in a disclaimer, too, that you might see some things change over time as we get uh, better set up and, and, uh, you know, all, all sorts of things figured out what the best lighting looks like for us, as well as how it's consumed by our listeners and viewers as well. So, so Chris, one thing I always throw out is I'll always drop a line to those of you who who like to listen to this or like to watch it or subscribe to it and stuff like that. If there's something that you feel that, hey, guys, I, I noticed this point or this or that, you know, could could maybe use a little bit of a touch, let us know. We, we'd love to hear that. We're always open to the feedback we can get because it uh, just helps us make it better. So yeah, please do. Yeah. We all want to grow together. That's the whole point. So uh, I found this first one really interesting and it contains an exercise that I'm going to try and get through on my own this week. Uh, the researchers in this article by Secure List, which is a Kaspersky publication, have come up with a lightweight method for detecting potential iOS malware. One of the challenges of determining if an iOS device has been compromised is the effort and expertise needed. You need to image a device and or do network analysis. It's not something that can be done casually. These researchers have come up with a bit of a shortcut by analyzing shutdown.log, which records all of the processes running when the device is shut down. The shutdown.log file can have years worth of data in it and is most certainly an interesting artifact. Using this methodology, the researchers were able to identify artifacts for Pegasus, Predator, and Rain malware. The caveat to all of this being that any processes being recorded had to be running when shutdown was initiated. So if you never shut down your device, there's not going to be any logs of covert processes that were running on your phone. We've heard this from CISA, and I would say it is definitely a good best practice, and that is to consider power cycling your phone daily. The way iOS is built, it's very difficult to gain persistence, and power cycling your phone will blow anything away that is living in memory. The article also included a link to some Python scripts that can be used to analyze a log dump from your phone, which is the exercise I'd like to go through this week. What do you think, Matt? Is this a worthwhile exercise to go through? Oh, absolutely. I mean, maybe not for fear that you or I are harboring any sort of uh, crazy espionage malware or anything like that, but maybe more just to understand the forensic behind it. You know, I got to say, I I think this is a pretty brilliant approach towards going through this. It may not be foolproof because I'm sure once this was published, you know, adversaries out there may be trying to find a way to avoid this, but we may have on our hands here a really tough artifact for malware to get around. And again, I think we've probably talked about this before many times now. 
something's got to be running in, in memory in order to do the malicious things that it wants done. So if I want to monitor keystrokes, I have to be running to be able to do that. It can't just happen silently. Now, it can happen in the background away from what the user sees and what the user knows. But the idea of that thing has to shut down eventually when you shut the phone down is a great way to just say, hey, you know, uh, it, it's, it's, it's an artifact that we can lean on. When I read through this one, I was like, man, this is a really cool forensic way to go about it as well, because as the article correctly calls out, imaging and analyzing iPhones, I mean, there's specialized software and hardware that you need to do that. Sometimes folks may even be in violation of, of certain, you know, EULAs or, or use agreements and things like that. And in this case, that there appears to be a pretty lightweight artifact and even some accompanying Python scripts that can be used to help make this easier. So uh, Chris, I would, I would just for the forensic takeaway alone, and I don't think I'm alone when I say we'd love to hear what your results are at the end, uh, but uh, for the forensic takeaways alone, it's a great little exercise and, and huge thanks to the folks over at, you know, SecureList slash Kaspersky for delivering this so that folks can perform that analysis. You know, we've discussed iOS and, and iPhone logs and malware and different types of malicious activity before I would say at multiple episodes. So it's great to always have a resource that you can use to identify if something malicious is, is happening or going on there. But yeah, I'm, I'm a huge fan of whenever a particular new forensic artifact comes about that we had maybe never seen before or maybe hadn't been broadcast out before and serves as a great way to detect something. Uh, another thing I'll drop in here as well is the article also does a really good job in going through and talking about an overview of the particular log, uh, as well as what the analysis scripts do and how they work. So if you're someone who's interested in going through and performing this analysis, definitely check out the show notes for this link because it's a great walkthrough. If you are a defender who does mobile forensics or does work in that mobile space, I you need this article in your arsenal. You need to go through and read it. It is critical to what you're doing on a daily basis. Yeah. And I was actually really surprised how easy it was to get the bundle out of your phone. I think you can just do it from general settings in iOS. So definitely an easy exercise to go through and you'll probably learn something for those listening. Just a reminder that we link all these articles in the show notes. Absolutely. Yeah. And please use those resources as well, everyone. Uh, you know, when we go through and cover things, Chris and I definitely talk about these articles from sometimes an abridged perspective, or we might zoom in on a particular part of something like an entry vector. But if you're like, hey, I, I want to look for evidence of this in my environment, there's a whole laundry list of other things to look for. And especially when it comes to forensic artifacts, make sure you tear them apart piece by piece so you understand what it is you're looking at. All right. So this next one has a bit of a pucker up feel to it. Apparently for the last four months, nearly 71 million unique credentials that were leaked from websites such as Facebook, Roblox, eBay, and Yahoo have been circulating on the internet. A lot of times these dumps are just previous leaks that have been rebundled, but analysis of this 104 gigabyte package indicate that approximately 25 million of these credentials have never been leaked before. And as a sad aside, noted by the author, most of the exposed credentials are weak and would easily fall to a simple password dictionary attack. Along with that depressing news, there was also a huge prevalence of folks with multiple entries in the dump that use the same password across multiple sites. I thought this one was worth mentioning because I'm sure we're going to see some fallout, and I know it's not going to be the case for most of the listeners of the show, but seriously, folks, if you're not using 2FA and everything at this point, you're just asking for trouble. And even though I know you have things on lockdown, I encourage you to take the time to get your parents or anybody else in your family who might not be as cyber aware using these basic best practices. 
I think it is easy for us as cyber practitioners to forget how far the general public has to go. Any surprises with this one, Matt? No surprises necessarily, but more of a here we go again moment, right? Uh, and it's funny, Chris, I, I, one thing I was, as I was reading through this article, one thing that, that hit me, I was listening to um, another podcast a, a couple of days ago, and there was a, a one of a very uh, popular CISO on there, I'll just leave it at that, who said, I'm the kind of guy who gives away password managers for Christmas as opposed to, you know, whatever it is you might be expecting. And I, I first off, I love that as a give, number one. Number two, uh, I'm in the same boat as you are, you know. I'm hoping that our listeners are not impacted by this. Now, let me be clear. When I say impacted by this, I don't mean your accounts didn't get you know leaked because that happens and it may not be your own fault. But the idea of shared passwords, um, passwords with very weak capable or weak strengths, weak attributes, all of those things should be tightened up uh, and absolutely should be something that you advise your family members on. You know, I'll I'll go to that old like kind of IT adage where every time someone who knows computers shows up at a family reunion, there's always like, you know, can you fix my iPad? Can you replace my cell phone battery? Blah, blah, blah. And it's like, you know what? Use that time to uh, talk about password security and things because you never know just how far this will extend. And let's go more technical on the long tail side of this now where this becomes critical and Chris, I'm going to use you as an example for this discussion here. Let's say I get access to a massive data breach or a leak like this, or I get access to years of historical data and I start to see what your passwords look like. And if you're not using some sort of random generator or, or something, and I think the article talks about Bitwarden, I believe, uh, free and open source password manager, really, really useful tool. I know lots of folks here use Bitwarden as well. If you're not using something like that, I'm going to start to recognize patterns in the way that you do things. Uh, there was a guy I used to work with many, many over, t- over 10 years ago. He used to, he's like, I don't trust password managers. He would generate his own password based on a bunch of different algorithms that he had and it had something to do with the site he was at and then kind of which browser he was using. I mean, it was very complex and complicated, but at the end of the day, it was human. And if I get enough history there, it's not hard for me to run those against like, you know, a rainbow tables or a password cracker or something to maybe figure out what it is. And don't forget, we've got AI capabilities now as well. Hey, ChatGPT, what are the similarities in these 20 strings of text that I may not have recognized before I may not see? And then I've got a programmatic approach to it. So where this becomes critical is being able to understand what folks may use historically. If there's an email address across two different sites with a shared password, that's a, that's a hint. Maybe this person likes to share passwords. Even if those passwords have been changed, and I'll use the, the, uh, the classic cybersecurity one here. Let's say your password was, you know, fall 2023, uh, exclamation point, period, or something. I know you've changed it, but I have a pretty good idea of what you might have changed it to. The only thing I've got to guess is, did you do winter 2023 or winter 2024? But either way, it allows us to start to build a profile, or I should say it allows adversaries to start to build a profile of what types of passwords you use. And then, of course, there's there's always, Chris, the biggest fear, which is none of these have been changed. And I take your password for you know uh, Reddit and I use it to get into LinkedIn, and then I post a, a job with a malware-ridden PDF or something like that, and next thing you know, you and I, six months from now, are talking about a massive data breach that started with a stolen password from this particular leak. One other thing I'll drop in here for folks. 
one of the sites, and I'm looking at the screenshot right now from the article here, one of the sites that's mentioned in here, I shouldn't say one, but it's the only one, but an important one in here are things like Coinbase, coinbase.com, eBay.co.uk and things like that. And I'm just pulling from the screenshot here. When you have passwords or when you have credentials for a site that allows you to conduct financial operations, you have an investment because most folks these days link their credit cards, link their bank accounts. If it's a crypto thing, you know you're a hot commodity. eBay, whatever it might be, if you're purchasing stuff, folks, that's that's a next level threat because this isn't just someone logged into you know my my Reddit and doxed me and exposed who I was or something like that. This is oh saved uh, financial information. Coinbase, I'm draining accounts and sending stuff out. And I'm just going to issue a blanket statement right now. If there's a site that you're doing financial movement on, buying stuff, selling stuff, purchasing things, holding things, whatever it might be, MFA is not a is is not a maybe. It's not a I'll get around to it. It's not a future idea. It is if it doesn't have MFA, and I don't can't use a thing like a pass key or a, a MFA on a separate system. Chris, don't use it. If you have a company that wants to be a custodian of financial data for you, but they won't give you an advanced mechanism to secure your credentials, just don't use it. They'll figure it out pretty quickly if they need to, but don't wrap your credentials inside of places like this because again, here we are, right? It's a massive thing that just gets taken. And the next thing you know, you turn around and you're like, uh, my money's been taken. We're gone. And that's unfortunate side effect you'll get of, of leaks like this. Yeah. And I'll even go farther and say, when you think about like social platforms like Facebook, you know, very easy for an attacker to take hold of a, a account and then message somebody's parents or figure out what their family looks like and ask for help. And, you know, it's going to look legitimate to them and, and can cause financial damage that way as well. Oh, yeah. I mean, all the different social engineering scams that you and I've talked about here, romance scams, uh, fake hijacks, uh, transfer me money, I'm lost kinds of things. Those all open up. So I, 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 you know what? We could go further and just say MFA everything, right? If me secure this stuff down, I mean, it's it's valid to understand the scope of how vast these accounts are from from a from a scope perspective, how wide reaching they are. You know, oh, it's just my Facebook account. Maybe it's your only link to your grandparents, right? And and that's there's a there's a weight to that connection there. Um, you know, maybe it's, oh, it, it, it's just my Twitter account. All I do is just tweet things there. It's a profile. It, 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 it's a custom dashboard where I can see an algorithm geared towards what you browse and what you look at. There's little bits of identifiable information in there. And then once again, you know, oh, it's, it's just, a, you know, it's just my Twitter or my X account. It, it's nothing, you know, financial and that kind of stuff. It's your DMs. It's the messages that you're sending to people or you're asking for help and things like that, you know, and and you get to a point where you can get into some really identifiable or damning information that unfortunately you can't like put that toothpaste back in the tube, you know, and, and there's there's lots of examples out here. Uh, another one that I've always kind of just like hung out in front of people with the stick in the carrot analogy has been your browser history, Right. If if I if someone's like, well, my browser history isn't full of malicious things, you know, it's just me browsing the internet and that kind of stuff. And I'm like, yeah, but understand that your browser history, there are people out there who pay tons of money to get that so they can run ads against it. An adversary goes and steals it for free. Your history now becomes an asset. 
right? And I think there's there's a very classic saying, which is if the product or thing that you're using is free, then you're the product. And of course, that's used to describe free email and free search engines and free whatever where folks are using your activity to model it. They then resell that. The moment something becomes a packageable asset like that, understand that it can be sold. It can also be stolen and then it can be abused in different ways. And, you know, Chris, we've talked about targeted phishing campaigns, uh, folks reaching out through various social media platforms, offering PDFs, resumes, stealing money, scams, all sorts of things happening. You know, and it's kind of like, well, how did that person know that I was interested in this type of thing? You know, and how did they craft it? Here it is. It's accessing your history and knowing exactly what you're into and then crafting it accordingly. All right. Well, this one's coming to us from Google Threat Analysis Group, or TAG. They're reporting that the Russian threat group Cold River has expanded its targeting of Western officials to include the use of malware. Cold River has historically been focused on credential phishing activities against high-profile individuals and NGOs, former intelligence and military officers, and NATO governments. Google is reporting on their evolution from credential phishing to delivering malware via campaigns using PDFs as lure documents. TAG is claiming that they have disrupted the campaign by adding all known domains and hashes to safe browsing block lists. Is there anything we can deduce from this change in tactics? I've never heard of Cold River before, or at least in a way that made them memorable. Could this be the beginning of something bigger and more nefarious? I mean, Chris, of course, that's always the that's always the possibility here. I, I think perhaps one of the biggest takeaways here, and and I hate to say that it kind of sounds like the same old thing, but the moment I read a threat article and it starts out with Russian threat group dot, 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 I'm kind of like, here we go again, right? Kinetic and cyber are, are, are blending, blending lines again. Um, I, I think what we're seeing here, is, or at least the way that I'm kind of looking at this, and I'm, I'm quoting from the article here, right? Cold River continues its focus on credential phishing against Ukraine, NATO countries, academic institutions, and NGOs. I don't think it would surprise any of us here, especially given the stuff that just you and I have talked about, Chris, and we're not at the front lines of this, is this isn't a surprising target list for them. We know how Russia feels in this geopolitical space. We know the things that are happening in that part of the world and some of what the folks are dealing with. it. And it should be no surprise that we're seeing you know groups like this reach out and uh, you know conduct these types of activities and then start to escalate a little bit further and whatnot. I think there's some interesting technical takeaways from this. And again, I'm, I'm looking at kind of the article here off to the side. We've got a piece of malware, um, SPICA, only because I'm not sure exactly how to pronounce that one, written in Rust using JSON over WebSockets for C2. I, I feel like I'm reading someone's latest and greatest desktop application when I read through this. Um, but it goes through doing things, you know, and it's a little bit of a uh, of a fun segue from our previous article here. But it goes through and it's doing things like stealing cookies from web browsers, perusing the file system and listing the contents of it, enumerating documents and exfiltrating them in an archive. Again, classic espionage. There's also one of my favorite ones here, and I, I don't mean to like cast any doubt and hopefully it doesn't come across that way, but they wrote in part of the backdoor technical breakdown, they said there's also a command called Telegram, but the functionality of this command is unclear. I read that and I immediately thought, well, it's either to send messages out via some Telegram C2 or to look for the presence of an exfiltrate Telegram data. I would assume one of the two because that's a common messaging app used for, you know, in this type of space and whatnot. But that being said, uh, I I think we're going to continue to see these threat groups kind of ramp up over time. 
as they get more advanced, the target list is is pretty straightforward, pretty much the same. And I, I wouldn't be surprised if this might also be kind of the entry vector group. Maybe this is the group. And again, Chris, we're you know, speculating here, right? This might be the group that identifies and gets that initial foothold and then hands them off to a more advanced group who needs some of those limited initial capabilities before they drill down further into, you know, the, the exploitations, the compromise, the data theft, things like that. Yeah, so much of the espionage stuff we see is really just about like intelligence gathering and figuring out who's who and where the weak point in the, you know, command structure of an organization is. Exactly. Yeah. And remember, you know, and it it kind of speaks a little bit towards the value of the data that's coming out of this as well. So reading again over the malware capabilities here, uh, and it's funny, there's actually a mention to the uh, the hacking team incident of July 2015. I read that and I was like, oh, it feels like a blast from the past. It was it was almost almost nine years ago. Enumerating documents and exfiltrating them is probably one of the most, uh, I don't want to call it advanced, but one of the most detrimental capabilities of this malware here, just because where do folks save all their stuff? Right on on their system on their on, you know on their computer because they want to be come back and read it later and we're talking about documents in draft form you might be talking about agreements we might be talking about things downloaded from email and whatnot the malware does not care if it says classified eyes only NATO officials only sensitive to this sensitive to that and stuff they just they want that intel they want to know where the movements are going where's the funding going where's the deployments going where's this happening where's that happening. So yeah, espionage may very much just be sometimes exfiltrating the documents folder and reading through it just to see what's in there. Mm -hmm. All right. So the next one up, the Microsoft security team is reporting that it detected a nation state attack on their corporate system on January 12th, 2024. The attack started in late November, 2023, when the threat actor employed a password spray attack to compromise a legacy non-production test account. They've identified the threat actor as Midnight Blizzard, a Russian state-sponsored threat actor also known as Nobelium or APT-29. This infamous Russian cyber gang is well known for being directly tied to the Kremlin's offensive intelligence activities against Microsoft and other Western organizations. Once they gained a foothold in the quote-unquote test account, the Russian cyber criminals exploited its permissions to access a very small percentage of corporate accounts. That's very small from Microsoft. Uh, these included members of the company's senior leadership team, employees in cybersecurity, legal, and other departments. The article also says some emails and attached documents were exfiltrated. Microsoft says there was no evidence the intruders accessed customer environments, production systems, source code, or AI systems. Is there anything we can learn from this one, Matt? Again, I should be surprised. You know, we've got a very prolific threat actor group who's launched an attack against a very, very large and well-known technology company, perhaps one of the largest in the world. So I, I didn't see anything super concerning about this, meaning I didn't see anything like, whoa, I didn't expect that, right? Uh, Microsoft got a, you know, was, was uh, I believe it was password spray attack that compromised a legacy account that was used to then get access to a few different emails and, and a few different email inboxes and things like that, I should say. But, uh, you know, it seems... I, I, Chris, I hate to classify it this way, but it feels kind of like a run of the mill should have closed off the test account guys, or, or, you know, may, maybe change the password or something like that. Um, I, I would be interested to understand, and, and maybe I need to read a little bit more to this one because I'm looking at the article and, and it's very much to the point. There's not much of a technical breakdown, but I would like to understand, you know, how you go from a test tenant in a legacy non-production environment to reading corporate emails and downloading attachments. That feels like 
not necessarily a hard line to draw, but it feels like a door that was probably left open that that shouldn't have been or maybe wasn't locked, but should have been and the adversary had the ability to get through. And I would maybe slightly argue that, you know, that probably should have been shored up. And if anything, the big takeaway here is, you know, legacy non-production test account is kind of the big keywords of cool. If it was a legacy account, why was it? Did it need to be there? If it was a non-production account, why was it internet facing or why were the ACLs allowed to be accessed? You know, I think there's there's lots of maybe logical walls that could be wrapped up around this one, which would be my takeaway for organizations who read this and are like, oh, no, what if it happens to us? Right. There's not much in the way of IOCs or anything. Maybe perhaps the other thing is uh, Microsoft, you know, kind of really doubling down on their secure future initiative. Uh, which is something that they've kind of called out as necessary given the the, the funding that are behind threat actors. And, and I don't feel like this is new, the funding that threat actors have, but Microsoft's you know big ability to be upfront, and you know, I'm quoting here, uh, highlighted the urgent need to move even faster, applying our current standards to Microsoft-owned legacy systems. I mean, I don't want to say duh, but at the same time, Chris, it's like, Oh, this is going to heighten this, you know, this is going to hasten the speed with which we secure our legacy environments. And it's like, yeah, we've only been screaming that for a decade plus to everyone else that's out there. Right. Uh, So maybe there's a a little bit of humble pie here to be had. uh, And no offense to anyone over at the Microsoft team. I'm not blaming any individual or any team about this, but uh, this is one instance where, you know, hey, uh, they got us once. We learned our lesson. Let's go ahead and implement some new policies, new practices to lock these types of things down so that this doesn't happen again. Yeah. And a reminder of how important it is to have like decommissioning processes for old employee accounts, test servers, just like things shouldn't just be left sitting around. If nobody's using it, it should be pulled down because there's so many cases where this is sort of the the beginning of the compromise starts with an old WordPress instance or old server that was just sitting there on the internet. 100%. This is a good example of that. You know, this is, I, I and I hate, to, I hate to say yet another, but this is yet another example of where it, it, you've got to have some sort of an offboarding or an offloading process for these types of things. A, again, legacy non-production account are the keywords where I'm kind of like tighten that attribute down. Let's take those adjectives and break them apart and implement policies at each level. If it's non-production, should it have been able to Yes, no, fix it. If it's legacy, should it have been able to? Yes, no, break it apart and just keep pulling on those threads until you've got this type of stuff locked down. Uh, and then, you know, the other thing that I, I I will give credit to Microsoft for is scale that out. You know, it shouldn't just be uh, one particular instance or, hey, this caused a certain team to act a different way. Corporate policy, this type of stuff does not happen anywhere. Go through audit, shut it down pass that knowledge on down to customers, pass that knowledge on down through your technology and kind of make it a a wholesome, uh, I should say holistic, not wholesome, but make it a holistic approach. This happened to us. We're going to lock it down from, from top to bottom. Yeah. And what do you think the chances are? We'll hear more about this one later that the threat actors were actually able to compromise much more than it's being disclosed right now. It's tough to know. It's tough to know what they have to disclose and what they don't. Chris, I think you and I have talked about this before, Mm -hmm. but there is a key line in here. To date, there is no evidence that the threat actor dot, dot, dot. 
This blog post was published January 19th, 2024. We're recording this episode four days later. Who knows? To date, there is no evidence of. You and I have talked before about how that's the legal side of saying the investigation may still be ongoing. The investigation may have been completed and there is just no evidence. The evidence may have been gone. There may be no evidence to show what actually happened in any event, right? We might see it come up a little bit further. It might also be one of those things where we may not at the, I'm going to call it at the pedestrian level, not that you or I are pedestrians necessarily, but we may not have the linkage a year from now. You and I might be talking about a breach that occurred that the genesis of started with this email hack, but we'd never be able to link those together because we don't know what was taken or what was observed from those inboxes, right? And it may be something really straightforward, like, you know, six months from now, a foreign competitor launches a company that directly competes with this initiative that Microsoft was planning to do, right? Sometimes it's really loud and in front of you, like, hey, look at this fighter jet. And you're like, well, that looks a lot like another one that we just created, you know? Um, and in other cases, there's some sort of economic thing in the background that we don't have purview to, but there are, you know, a handful of people at a high enough level who are like, ah, that, that that was a pretty big loss as a result of that breach, but we'll obviously never tell anyone. Yeah. Yeah. Why am I seeing Nortel log messages in my Huawei router? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that's, that, that's, that's a good one as well. All right, Matt, that brings us to the end of another lovely Intel chat. As always, a huge thank you to those folks that take the time to share their observations with us in the Lima Charlie Community Slack channel. If you're not already in there, you should join us. Much more information than we're able to cover on the show is being shared there, and we'd love to have you join the conversation. You can sign up at slack.limacharlie.io. And Matt, thank you so much for jumping in every week to share your expertise and experience with us. I'm already looking forward to the next one. Chris, as always, it's great to be here. And for those of you who are seeing the new format, we'd love some feedback. If you like it, if you love it, if you don't, let us know. Either way, thanks again. Great being here, Chris. I'll see you next week. All right. Take care, sir. Bye. And that concludes this episode of the Cybersecurity Defenders podcast. If you have any feedback or ideas for future topics, please send an email to defenders at limacharlie.io. You can access the intel we talk about on the show in real time and join the conversation on the Lima Charlie Community Slack channel at slack.limacharlie.io. If you've enjoyed the show, please consider sharing it with someone or leaving a rating or review. And don't forget to subscribe on whatever platform you're listening from. Thanks for listening in. We'll see you on the next episode.